Welcome back, loyal listeners. This is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope, and I love you. The audience and Seth. <laughs> yeah. Hard to believe, but we're at the end of our first season of It Happened in Hollywood. This has been an amazing journey through the wormhole of time into some of the most memorable moments in at least my Hollywood history. Well, yeah, like your <laughs> David Lynch trips that you went on. We wanted to go out with a bang for the last episode of our first season. And what bigger bang than a punk rock, transsexual, East German, <laughs> botched sex change. Flippy wigged. Oh, yeah. Like Call back to Farrah Fawcett. Paper, um, uh, toilet paper rollers in the hair to make the curls. Trailer park trash. Animated interludes mythology <laughs> if you haven't figured out what it is by now then you probably aren't a fan but if you are a fan you are in for a real treat and that's what's up today on it, it happened, happened in hollywood, Love that theme. That's our own rock anthem by the boys from Cynic, Paul Masvidal and Sean Malone. And uh, shout out to Paul, who has a solo album coming out. It's actually three albums. So look for that. Whoa, that's online. ambitious. He's a genius. Speaking of ambition, our guest this week. Our guest is none other than John Cameron Mitchell. They have run out of hyphenates for what this guy can do. Yeah, exactly. He started as a professional actor working in L.A. and in New York theater. And as he's going to tell us today, he, he had cravings to do something more and, and to create something that actually meant something. That led to his masterwork, Hedvig and the Angry Inch. Amazing. And he's still hot at it. You know, after Hedvig, which he starred in, wrote, directed, you know, it was a off-Broadway show. Then it became a killer films feature went to broadway oh and then it went to broadway so crazy they, they like, brought it what back a long road to broadway with neil patrick harris playing the part of hedwig but he stepped in as well tay diggs was uh, a hedwig Who else? yeah and as he's gonna tell us today you know hedwig is not one person and it's not even a real person it's an idea it's a metaphor he says and anyone and anything can play hedwig including meryl streep who politely turned him down <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it, because I love him. He's a genius. He can just talk as if he's reading out of his memoirs, but he's just talking to you like... It's really amazing. A really normal amazing. person. And, a raconteur. Uh, and he has a new scripted podcast, a, a fictional podcast that's sort of a sequel to Hedwig, and we'll get into that in the show as well. But I, I'm too excited about this episode. Let's start with maybe somewhere in the 90s. He's He's been on Broadway. He's kind of... You know, feeling listless, empty, something is not feeding his soul. Around 94, I really wanted to make something that was different. I wasn't seeing my world. AIDS was, was reaching a, a frenzied peak in the early 90s. A couple of plays were dealing with it, but, you know, certainly musicals were not. I mean, falsettos a little bit, but it was not... I didn't feel like I was seeing the things that moved me on stage in terms of amazing drag performers, rock and roll, 
stand-up even, performance art, but using the structure of a Broadway show. So Stephen and I combined all those elements into something that was very doable because it was me in a band with a backup singer, and we could do it anywhere. But we were shooting for Off-Broadway. took us about four years. So he's talking about Stephen Trask, who wrote the music for Hedwig. Yeah, and that was I had never heard of Stephen Trask before Hedwig. Had you? I feel like I'd met, I heard his name, you know, mentioned in this those kind of New York '90s, early '90s circles, with like Girls Against Boys and uh, what what other bands like that in the early '90s. But so, so he was sort of, of around on the scene, but uh, somehow with his soundtrack for Hedwig, he just knocked it out of the park. Every song was a very catchy rock anthem and a real rock and roll song that you know you could put it up next to most of those classic kind of 70s type songs we read David Bowie. Now, I just assumed they had met in the scene somewhere, but there was actually an interesting story of how they met. It seems like so many creative unions happen in airplanes. There must be something yes. up there. I met Stephen on a plane. He was actually reading scripts for New Line, and I had just finished Book of Love and had also done Freddy's Nightmares, I think, which was the... Nightmare on Elm Street TV show that they did. And his manager had written the story to my episode. It's with all these weird things in common. Mike DeLuca was involved with that, and now he was the head of production at New Line. So he he was reading a Fassbender book. You know, it was like a perfect thing. And we were avoiding the movie, which was when Harry met Sally, <laughs> which I still hadn't seen, and uh, started talking. And then we bumped into each other over for the next couple of years randomly. And then when I was looking for a composer, I went to see his band Cheater at CBGB's. And he went to see me in a musical called Hello Again at Lincoln Center. And we both agreed we should work together. So I started telling him stories about my life and the character of Hedvig, which was really Helga in my life. It was a babysitter for my brother who was also a prostitute in Kansas. Did you know that Hedvig was his brother's prostitute babysitter named Helga? No, I did not know that. I mean, that seems like a real obscure one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that even people who you, you could watch the whole movie and not think, well, I bet that character is based off of a babysitter. Now, Helga did not have an angry inch. That was a flight of artistic fantasy. But she sounded like quite a woman. Let's learn a little bit more about Helga the prostitute babysitter. Which also sounds like a New Line movie from the time. <laughs> Helga was, a, was moonlighting and had a lot of dates. And me and my friend Brenda would go over to her trailer and she had a different date every night. She never knew what they were going to look like. And she was not that good looking, but she was so popular and all these guys. And she never, they'd come up the driveway and we'd have to go out. Brenda and I would go out the back. We'd, she would just kick us out. But if she didn't, like the look of the guy, she'd go out the back too <laughs> with us. And it was only later Brenda reminded me. I was like, oh, my God, she was working a lot of angles. And she was a kind of model for a character. She was a, a woman, bio woman. But then when we were, Trask and I were hanging out at Squeezebox, which was the punk rock drag club of the 90s that was the you know the party I'd always dreamed of where you could, you know, mosh with the cute boys and it was, you know, the agenda was on the surface instead of underneath. 
it was heaven. And uh, Stephen was the leader of the house band that would accompany various drag queens on punk rock covers. And his bass player, Jack, was eventually became my boyfriend. So we, from 94 on, we we developed it in, in clubs. We wanted to keep it out of theaters because a lot of things that were so-called rock musicals were pretty tame mm-hmm. because they were theater-based. And we wanted the band on stage and a real assault. I appreciate Rent for what it's done for the world, but it wasn't very rock and roll. You know, it wasn't what it said it was. You know, kids mm-hmm. in the East Village making music, it doesn't, that's not the music they would be making. Right. <laughs> right. It's very Disney-fied. Yeah. They wouldn't be wearing those clothes. But, <laughs> but it was about, you know, real things were happening. So Squeeze Box, I was actually living in New York at this time in the late 90s. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was actually really cool. It was on the, the west side like towards the water and you never knew who you were going to see there. You might have see, you could see like Courtney Love one night or Drew Barrymore another night. I remember one night I was dancing on the dance floor and I came face to face with Boy George. Whoa. And he What's... had just been on Oprah and she had had some sort of like anti-gay Christians on and he told them off. Oh, nice. And I like totally cheered him on and I think I freaked <laughs> him out a little, but it was it was that kind of place where you could just like rub shoulders with all kinds of like rock stars and Debbie Harry and it made the gay scene seem really punk rock and cool oh and not the, the sort of homogenized sort of dance mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. that you were yes. hearing in other neighborhoods like Chelsea. Yeah, you mean like West Hollywood right now for like the past 15 years? <laughs> past what do you mean? 2,000, yeah. <laughs> 500 years, the same beat has been pounding out of West Hollywood. Ooh. So anyway, yeah, I was on the fringes of this world watching like a doe-eyed (laughs) 20-something. Now, at the time, I remember there was this trans punk rock crazy artist named Jane County that would perform there. And I remembered that there was some sort of controversy that Jane County was saying that Hedwig was based on her and she didn't get any cut of the profits and the, she was once again taken advantage of. And um, so I... I, I um, <laughs> Let's find out why. ...developed a stammer. But no, I couldn't help but, you know, ask if there was any truth to that. I know Jane County was performing there. At and Squeezebox. At Squeezebox. Later was on. she an inspiration? And uh, did she complain later that she felt she was? And I think she, I mean, she's had a hard life, mm-hmm. you know. And when we started Squeezebox, she came later after Hedvig was already starting. But I'd certainly heard of her and had her Maxis at Kansas City album where she was the DJ and did, if you don't want to fuck me, fuck off. And, you know, mm-hmm. she was great. She was more like New York Dalsy than, you know, but with a punk spirit. But she's a trans person making rock and roll, which was the only similarity. I mean, though, I, I actually have never thought of Hedvig as trans because it was a boy who was quite comfortable in his gender and as a, as a gay man and is coerced mm-hmm. into a mutilation, really, mm-hmm. by her boyfriend, her mother and really by the patriarchy if you think about it or the binarchy that says you have to be one or the other for certain things to happen and people to get married and get it you know it's just it's all the same bullshit but it's not really a trans story you know it's it's not a trans statement to me certainly there's gender cross you know there's there's all kinds of gender fluidity and exploration but i don't think of it as any by the trans story because you sort of to want to be trans, you 
you want to be. Right, <laughs> you know, right. You choose to be in, or identify yourself as. Yeah, so from Wayne County to Jane County, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, she's from Georgia, you know, the, I think Georgia. But, you know, there was not really much in common. But one, she one did question. get mad. She yeah, did, she was right. like, I, I guess there wasn't room for two blondes on stage. You know, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Later, she apologized. You bring up an interesting thing, which is that, you know, when it came back to Broadway and it had a whole resurgence in that period, the whole trans movement happened. And I wondered, did the trans community now embrace this as their story? And did they feel interpreted in such a way that they feel a trans actor should be playing Hedwig or? No one has said that to me, but I've heard that, mm -hmm. you know, come up. The thing is, you know, at Squeezebox, which was a drag club. Mm -hmm. And drag and trans have interactions, you know, intersections. Mm -hmm. They're two different things. Love and sex are two different things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have both at the same time. <laughs> I had that once. Yeah. <laughs> and as you know, drag is performance. It's a show. Mm -hmm. Trans is, is your life. It's your identity. It's how you live. And you might be a performer who also, you know, prefers to uh, be identif female identified if you were born a boy. And I would see people at the show who were at Squeezebox that were trans, and some were uh, drag queens. And probably if they came up now, they would be called themselves non-binary. I probably would too, if I was 17 right now, mm. just to like loosen things up. And I, I admire that. I admire the people who are not trapped in the binarchy, because that's what society tells you is you, you can only be one or another. When we're really all on a continuum, and male and female, what that means changes too. So the terms I find not particularly useful, you know, male and female, because we're always in the middle. And, and Hansel slash Hedvig is very much a gender of one because of this forced sex reassignment. And she, at the very beginning of the show, says, I'm the wall. Try and tear me down. But I am, I am not you or you. I'm not east or west. I'm not man or woman. I'm not top or bottom. I am the wall, which can also be a bridge if you look at it the right way. She says, there's not much of a difference between a bridge or a wall. Without me in the middle, you would be nothing at all. You must remember one thing! Hey. Ain't much of a difference between a bridge and a wall. He almost started singing the song there. I got really excited when those lyrics started kind of like goosebumps. Right? Did you think he was going to stand up and just tear into it? Get on the table and just go for it. Put on his wig? Beto style. <laughs> Get your feet <laughs> off that table. We're trying to eat, Beto. Maybe this is a good moment for those who are not familiar with Hedwig to sort of quickly explain what the concept here of, of the show is. Pitch it to me. I, I pretend I'm a network executive somewhere. Okay, so it's, it starts in East Germany when the wall is still up. You lost me. <laughs> keep going, keep going. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> keep going. And uh, he's the, the son of a serviceman, isn't he? An American uh -huh. serviceman and a German... Who never seems to be at home. Mother. And the serviceman is, yeah, 
just takes off on them. And the mother raises him, and he discovers is, he can sing to himself by putting his head in the oven. Right? Yeah, he hangs out in the oven. He naps there, and that's his sort of playroom. <laughs> One day, he's lying sunning himself, and a American serviceman down, right? Face down. So yeah, you can't really tell what sex he is, and he's very kind of young and girly looking. And uh, American serviceman sees him and plies him with all kinds of candies, and basically they start a affair. And then the mother sees this serviceman as his name is Hansel at that point, a ticket back to the U.S. And the serviceman says, "Well, you know, they're going to examine him, so we should really give him a sex change." And the mother, for some reason, is goes along with this. And they do, but they go to some scary back alley doctor, and uh, of he, he botches Berlin. it. And instead of giving him sort of a surgical vagina, he gives him a angry inch, right. a one inch mound of flesh, where his penis used to be, where his right. vagina never was. Well, I'm an executive. I'll buy this. I feel like it's a summer franchise. <laughs> it actually does have kind of an epic backstory. Well, that's the but, backstory. But then he develops a band, and he becomes right. an angry punk rocker, and he meets a very cute sort of up-and-coming pop singer. And, and a pop singer uh, and steals all his songs. And then the pop singer steals all his songs, goes on, becomes a huge arena-selling megastar, and Hedwig goes and follows him around from show to show, performing in little restaurants and dives and things like that. But what's what was so cool to hear from John is, you know, his interpretation of what Hedwig is. And it's not a rock star. It's not a, a, a star vehicle. It, to him, it's, it's a concept. It's an idea. Mm-hmm. And it's a very personal one to him. By having a Hedwig, it's like that thing. If there was no God, we'd have to invent it. If there was no Hedwig, you have to invent it. And we do. I, I did. You know, because there isn't one. But the metaphor of it, the metaphor of someone caught in the middle is how a lot of people feel, you know, not knowing who they are, being treated a certain way, being swindled, being stolen from, being raped and mutilated. Even if you haven't been raped and mutilated, a lot of people who have nothing to do with Hedwig's story relate to it. And that is a great gift. And that can be trans people. And that can be straight people. It can be drag performers. It can be, you know, I've had all kinds of people say, thank you for giving me a space in which I can be myself. Not to imitate you and not to do just what you did, but to empower me. If that can happen and that can be kind and and also in your face and challenging and ultimately humane and empathetic, then I can make something like that. I'm freed to do that. So many trans people have thanked me, and I'm moved by that because I'm not trans. You know, it's like that is the point of art is that we go somewhere with our imagination and find these things in common with people you don't, you didn't think you had and enable them to do their thing. That's the best. Comfort as well. Escapism is important, but to me, all of my stuff is has to be useful to me and to my viewers, and that's why it's hard to do just whatever that, you know things that have no depth. I was overjoyed to understand that people understood that Hedwig is a metaphor, a very specific one, just as Jesus is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Who the hell knows what happened to Jesus? But once in a while you read something and go, oh, that's, you know. I love his work. I love his work. As <laughs> it says, like, this is a great, you know, 
who would say turn the other cheek? That has never happened in the history of religious leaders to turn <laughs> right. the other cheek. Maybe Buddha. But, you know, there was – it's a metaphor. The Bible's a metaphor. Hedwig's a metaphor. It's all useful if you make it useful. It's also like entertaining, though, the way that you do it, you know, because something like Hedwig is also very entertaining and very funny and it never seems preachy. And it's is like a – painting in a way where you get what you get out of it. So your point of view that you bring to it is also something that's as important to me as the finished product. Yeah. And it can mean different things at different times in your life. My favorite things are ones I can revisit. We all know things that we love, but you know you don't want to see it again. And you may be even moved, but you sense that it's not necessarily going to be another experience next time or a better experience next time. You got it all. Maybe it was simple, a simple story. I prefer denser things that can be revisited and go, oh, I never thought of that or, you know, something like this. But it has to go down easy with the spoonful of sugar, which is the music and the comedy and the design, the jokes, you know. Sense of humor will reduce our super ego judging side. It just sort of deactivates it so things can get in when you laugh, you, just, you, you drop the judge, which is why I like to go from a laugh to something that might make you cry, you know, in the next beat. Because that happens in life. You know, it really does. I mean, we all have cracked up in the middle of a funeral and it, it, it is funny yeah. and it is tragic and it's, that's life. You know, life is not a genre. Hedwig loves uh, plays on words. Are you a fan of plays on words? Of course. <laughs> of course. My mom is Scottish. I grew up with British humor and culture, and uh, it's very word-based, you know, British. And even the the working-class people relish good wordplay in Boulevard Entertainment in in the U.K. Uh, Americans are more uh, suspicious of of words Mm -hmm. (laughs) and tend to be more literal. And, you know, Europeans understand metaphor. Maybe they've been around longer. But I love the British sense of humor. It can be quite dark and, and, you know, mean too. But, um, you know, when I did Hedwig on Broadway, I I ripped my knee out on stage. And at first I was like, oh God, how am I going to, you know, I have another three months. And, but then the next moment was like, oh, I have all kinds of lines I can now write (laughs) to explain this, this knee. And I had a bedazzled leg brace, you know, for the next three months and talked about being kneecapped outside the dress barn by someone in a sting mask because he was he was playing across the street. <laughs> the Broadway rivalries, and I was like, I had no idea that Sting was still considered a person of interest. <laughs> and the audience was seeing the show with the original cast. <laughs> so there you go. to me, wherever, you know, squeeze as many jokes in as possible. <laughs> and then the music is so, I mean... That's what keeps bringing me back. Yeah. It never gets old. Stephen Trask's classic score. And, you know, someone who hadn't really made, he'd made a musical film and stuff, but he hadn't really used those powers, you know, that he had been building up and eclectic interests in. I'm more the Bowie guy. He was more the Lou Reed and John Lennon guy. And, you know, between us, we found this, you know, glam inflected. Classic rock score, really. Yeah. What was the first song or the first one where you thought, oh, wow, we've, we've cracked it? Well, the first it. one was in some ways the best one, which was The Origin of Love. I had seen a production of 
an adaptation, stage adaptation of Plato's Symposium in L.A. in the 80s, directed by David Schweitzer. And the symposium really is a, a platonic dialogue of a bunch of homos after, you know, like a post-Tony's party. <laughs> it's, it's after the theater awards party, mm-hmm. talking about love, gossiping about love. And they each have to give a speech in honor of man-on-man love. And Aristophanes tells the story of the origin of love, how we were cut in half by the gods and we are consistently seeking our other half, and that is love. And that just really moved me and felt like a myth written by a person rather than a religion. You know, it was about love, of course. And in opposition to the gods, you know, it was almost like the first deist tract or almost atheist. You know, it was like, I'm not going to believe in these people that are these gods that are afraid of us. When we were whole, we were more powerful than the gods. And so love as a power thing was very much in the stories, immortality and power and, and even the sacred band of Thebes in the piece is described as a, a famous military unit made up of male lovers who were the fiercest in all of Greece. And when Alexander the Great defeated them, the sacred band of Thebes, you know, he wept because it was these lovers, you know, and Alexander was famously had his own male lovers. So that was the center of it. And I gave this text of that story to Stephen and he came back with a song word for word and note for note. And it was just amazing. You know, so I was like, this is our beginning. Wicked Little Town was the next one. What town is the Wicked Little Town to you? If you... It's Junction City, Kansas, okay. where Hedvig <laughs> lived and I lived. And How long I, did you live there? Uh, just three years, uh, but it was a very you know, salient years. There was a lot went on. I pubesced. My brother died. My mother went in a little bit insane, and I met Helga. I mean, it was a lot, you know, a lot went on. I felt like I became a person there, and it's also the setting of my new musical anthem. And some of the things you just said are dramatized in Anthem. Yes, Anthem, which is really my alternative autobiography, musical podcast series that's out now on a new app called Luminary, podcast app called Luminary. So something about these three years have created or have produced a, a, a big slice of Yeah, I your think we all creativity. have. I mean, I moved a lot as an army brat, but there was something about that time that was most powerful. I mean, I've thrown in some other stuff from being in Albuquerque in high school, but, you know, writers go back to, many writers write about the same place, you know, Faulkner, and they, one goes back to that time that right. was the most important time and that place and keep writing about it. And I've lived a lot of places, but there's something about Junction City, which was a very different kind of town. It was a small town near an army base, which are different from other small towns because they tend to be more racially diverse because of the military. They tend to have more crime because the soldiers, you know, need to be serviced with drugs and prostitutes. 
But there's a weird live and let live thing about it too because of the diversity and my school was very racially mixed and I didn't really understand the problem of other places, you know, that had problems with someone from somewhere else because the army was, everyone was from somewhere else and Mm -hmm. to me that was America. So it's crazy how much of his work has come out of that three years. Yeah, almost makes me want to take a pilgrimage to this Junction City, Kansas and see what's going on over there. (laughs) Well, it doesn't seem like a hub airport. You know, I don't know if there's a lot of flights direct to Junction City. It's just interesting. You know, the saying you leave your hometown, but it never leaves you. I think that's important for his career. And I think it's remarkable that he's had, you know, all this success in, you know, the media capitals, New York, Los Angeles, but he he never tries to escape where he came from. And on the contrary, he he uses that to create his art. And in some ways, I would say he's a great American artist, writer, author, performer. And I don't think he ever really gets thought of that way. He gets put in the punk rock Hedwig Alterna box, Mm -hmm. but there's something a lot deeper going on about American values with his work. Will Rogers in drag. (laughs) And an angry inch. (laughs) Yes. You'd be angry too. You know, he's fascinating to me because he, the way I saw him and still see him is a huge success, you know, and he's gone on to direct films with Nicole Nicole Kidman Kidman and, you know, he's, he's had a varied career and, you know, now he's on this show Shrill that we both love on Hulu. Yeah, great show. And he was on Girls, always at the epicenter of whatever the hip, cool thing is. He shows up and adds another luster of of authenticity and coolness to it. Right. And he, but he's clearly not chasing any kind of coolness or trying to be cool. He's just this guy following his muse. Yeah. You know, in talking to him, it was interesting. These are all very conscious decisions on his part. And every person's career is different in show business. And you do what feels right at the time. And he had a pretty strong moral compass as far as after his big breakthrough, quote unquote, which he doesn't, he kind of plays down with Hedwig, what he was going to do next. And it was really interesting to hear how he guided himself through that and the advice he took and chose to disregard or chose to take. If you do something different, you know, you make less money. That's fine. And you get more satisfaction. (laughs) (laughs) I never like to be told what to do as an actor, as a gay person, as a man, as whatever I did, in fact, will do the opposite, but not just to shock or be contrarian, but to, I, I just, I had some good mentors, you know, who said Hollywood will fuck you up. So be skeptical. Who told you that? I got that from Barry Miller, who was, I did a film with in, co- in college, an American Playhouse piece, Barry Miller, who, who starred in Fame and The Chosen and, mm-hmm. and Saturday Night Fever was very punk rock and he grew up in the business so he you know people who do tend to be more skeptical of it you know his his mother i think was a famous some something in the business but he had a real like you know do what you need to do and like they're gonna but say no sometimes there's a great power in saying no if it feels wrong i also had bruce norris who was at school with me and he quit a sitcom which was unheard of you know and was never going to work again. And he was like, fuck it, I don't give a shit. And then he went on to win the Pulitzer for Clyburn Park and and then quit the corrections. We did it again. You know, it's like, <laughs> how can he quit? 
and Meshach Taylor was I was in my first play Huckleberry Finn Meshach took care of me and so I had people who were always like and, and great teachers like Frank Galati and and Bud Byer at Northwestern who were Steppenwolf people and they were doing you know, adapting Nabokov and Beckett and it was like the world is your oyster artistically you're not necessarily going to be artistically you know satisfied as an actor in Hollywood or even, maybe even on Broadway and so you have to make your thing and you you pay the bills and then you do your thing so I always had that so I never felt trapped mm-hmm. anywhere and if something was accidentally well known, I knew that things come and go. You know, Hedwig was, you know, I was nominated for a Golden Globe and it was a hoot to go, but it was fun because I I could leave. <laughs> right. You know, I could, I could enjoy it, laugh and leave. And a lot of other people there felt like they were in high school and they were, they had to do the right thing and they were trapped. Um, and I was like, bye. So I did enjoy being the populist outsider. I still want things the work to be accessible. I want it to always have something you can be challenged by. And I also know that the more money you get, the more trouble it's going to be. They pay you in order to fuck you up. (laughs) (laughs) That's the deal. The more money you get, the more stupid things will happen. And sometimes you got to make that money, you know, and you got mouths to feed and family and such. And my mom has Alzheimer's and needs a lot of money. So in the last few years, I went full force to make money, which I hadn't had to do because I have cheap rent in New York. But then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have – I think I have to act in a – be a regular in a TV show again, which I hadn't done in 20 years. So I was like, I'm available, you know, hoping <laughs> someone cared. And then instantly I got shrill, which was a great job. Right. Great That's part. still a good show. Yeah, great right. People. It's not like a – piece of crap no, it is about something great. and yeah and it's like two months out of the year with nice people and they let me write you know rewrite some of my lines and it's all good lena dunham pulled me out of retirement you know to do girls mm-hmm. so i'd been doing a little acting and it's been fun but i did quit for 15 years after mm-hmm. hedvig because i was like oh, i don't want to be just an actor again i was writing and directing i'm curious about that yeah. shift so so hedwig becomes a sensation off broadway yeah You'd already been on non-lucrative sensation, non-lucrative, but it definitely made you a, a name, shaking things up. Yeah, yeah. And you represent a certain some, kind of counterculture figure that who's still commercial somehow, barely. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it was a hit. Like people were talking about. It. I went with my mom. I'll yeah. never forget on Halloween. It was she, more of a success d'estime, which is French for yeah, but can you eat it? <laughs> right. It, <laughs> but it didn't have everyone on Broadway trying to get you in their Broadway show after that? No, because they always want you to do what you just did. Mm. So the offers I would get would be like, I have another German role. Right? <laughs> it's called the MC in Cabaret. And I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> no, which is great. But, you know, it's, to them, it's the same thing. Or right. I was offered a, an X-Man role. <laughs> oh, my God. Because they had a German accent. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't really want to. I was tired. And like I was Young Magneto finished. or something? It was Nightcrawler, actually. Wow, really? Uh, but I just, I who was actually my favorite X-Men as a kid, but I was tired. I, I was, I quit acting, you know, and I, I just saw a lot of makeup 
being put on. <laughs> sit in a chair for four yeah. hours. It went to Alan Cumming. And then you're like. Yes. And he did a great job. I think he didn't have a very good time, he told me. <laughs> but it was, I had just did what Barry Miller and Meshach Teller told me, go follow your heart, you know. And making Hedvig was following my heart. It was, certainly wasn't a career move because many people were like, what are you doing, drag? And, you know, it's very low class and, you know, punk rock is not going to sell and. You know, it's funny, even your most avant-garde friends are like, well, is that really going to sell? I'm like, S what are you talking about? You're the guy who does atonal, you know. Right. <laughs> everyone's a fucking, you know, right. everyone's got resting pitch face now. <laughs> um, so we made it for love and we made it for our friends. And it was a shock when, you know, people wanted to make it as a film. It was a musical for people who didn't like musicals, too. So... The regular audiences were often silent, you know, like not laughing at all. But then we would get, you know, rock stars in and, and interesting people and Bowie and Lou Reed and they loved it. This was at the live shows? This was off-Broadway, yeah. Yeah, he plays it down, but this thing was the toast of New York for a while. Uh -huh. And some crazy names were coming to check out the show. Names like... David Bowie, who mm -hmm. the show probably owes Heard of him. more of a, you know, of its stylistic DNA to than any other artist, but right. as well as Lou Reed, probably owes the other half of its stylistic it's DNA crazy. to Lou Reed. Yeah. And then a bunch of other super rando celebrities. And it was really fun to hear him talk about greeting these people backstage. So here's John talking about David Bowie's reaction to the show. I just can't imagine meeting Bowie face to face and having to hear what he thought of your glam rock opera. <laughs> Hello, John. <laughs> I didn't know he was there, thank God. I met him later, and he put money into our L.A. production, actually. Mm -hmm. And he said, you got it right. You got it right. I was like, oh, my God. Wow. And Did he come backstage? He didn't. I met him later. My boyfriend worked at a studio where he would rehearse, so I met him there. Wow. But Lou Reed did come up and... You know, said that was beautiful and that was very powerful. And, you know, a lot of our heroes. And it was a great cross-section. You know, it would be like one night would be, you know, B. Arthur and Gallagher, you know, or <laughs> Marilyn Manson and Barry Manilow. Not together, but they would all, you know, it would be this mixture, you know, Patti LuPone and the guy who sings You, you Spin Me Right Round, Baby, Right Round. Pete you know, Yeah, Pete Burns. <laughs> RIP. And it was just actually the Bowie, the Bowie night actually by accident, Jane County oh, wow. came and she came upstairs and she was, I think, thrown by the fact that Bowie was there because I think she feels that Bowie stole her, some of her shtick. <laughs> I think everybody stole <laughs> right. her shtick. But, you know, there was, it was so wonderful, you know, to have our heroes come and like it and get it. And, you know, and then we're making a, a a soundtrack that Atlantic wanted to be very, you know, be big. So they were spending a lot of money on it. And Amit Erdogan came with his oh wife God. and said that was the best performance I've ever seen in my life. I don't know if he was lying. <laughs> if he says that to everybody yeah. over the last 50 it's like, years. what about Aretha Franklin? I know. Yeah. What about uh, <laughs> Al Green? Um, so we were getting a lot of attention. I was old enough to deal with it because I'd... You know, I, as Barry told me, comes and goes. I was level-headed about it. And then when it, it was 1998, so there was a lot of small film companies. Every, you know, major had a, a specialty house. 
and so Artisan and New Line and, you know, everybody is, is sniffing around us. And we had the connection with Lu New Line. And Mike DeLuca was like, we, I really want to make this. And Bob came and was like, tears in his eyes, we're going to do this. We're gonna, you're going to direct. I, was, I didn't even know if I wanted to direct or could. You know, I was like, maybe I should co-direct. Okay, so we should probably jump in here to explain a bit how it went from the stage to the screen. So the Bob that he's referring to is Bob Shea, who was the head of New Line. Mm -hmm. They had a relationship before because Bob had him come in to read for this movie and John was very honest with him and told him to his face that he thought the character that he was reading for was written very, in a very homophobic fashion. And Bob was taken aback. He'd never sort of been spoken to that honestly before and they developed a relationship and when the question of whether Hedwig could make the leap to the screen happened, Bob kind of stepped up and said, I want to make this movie. Right. And he apparently paid a lot of attention to the production and everything, even though he was doing Lord of the Rings at the time. Right. Yeah. So and and uh, John. Two different worlds, fantasy worlds, Hedwig versus Hobbits. But they collided at these weird holiday parties that New Line were throwing that year. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> the cast of Lord of the Rings at the same uh, nog table with yes. uh, the cast of Hedwig. Ian McKellen wistfully wanting to be in Hedwig. <laughs> oh, I could play Hedwig. <laughs> Trying on the, the wig. <laughs> I'm sure that actually happened. You know, it was a modest hit, as John points out, more of a cult theatrical hit than a wicked type mega hit. Not necessarily a no-brainer to turn into a movie, but with Bob's pull, it became a movie. And they, you know, the, the play takes place all in one restaurant. The movie, you know, expands it out a bit and you get to meet this Tommy Gnosis pop star character, mm -hmm. which you don't ever get to see him in any great way in the, in the stage play. And they add Andrea Martin to the cast. Uh, from um, SCTV who, and who just was Broadway his, everything. He had another actress in mind for that part. He envisioned Madeline Kahn, and she became a friend of his, which that's crazy. But she was sick at the time, and that he also said that they auditioned Elaine May, but she didn't really get it. John has a lot of important sort of diva friends. <laughs> yeah. Because on this podcast that he's doing, he has... Patty LuPone. Patty LuPone, Glenn Close. What? Cynthia Erivo. Laurie Anderson. It's not really a diva, but a performance artist legend. But these major uh, female art figures are, I guess, on his Rolodex. And anyway, so the movie came out in 2001. Specifically, what? it came out in July 2001. Oh, great timing. So not the greatest timing considering 9-11 happened, but not as bad as Glitter, which came out the same weekend as 9-11. It did? Yeah. Oh, man. So not the greatest time for a movie about walls coming down to hit theaters, but and the movie was in a, a bit of a bust. It only made $3 million. But that's so besides the point. Right. It probably made that money back and video, you know, video rentals were still big then. It's a good reminder that stop being so concerned about what a movie makes on its opening weekend. But let's get back to the making of the movie. So Bob Shea, friend of John's, wants to make this movie, wants John to direct it, even though he's never directed anything in his life. Right. Let's get back into the story of, of how the movie came together. Were there other people that were interested in directing? There were. I think Tim Burton wanted to do it. Forrest Whitaker really wanted to direct it. I said, Forrest, I didn't know him. Can I call you for it? You know, I didn't know what... To 
words for the trees. I said, I, I want to direct it. You said, John, that would be a terrible mistake. My God. I was like, why? <laughs> I was why? like, that's so mean. Oh, my God. But, you know, I had never done anything. I directed on stage, and it was the Sundance Lab. Michelle Satter invited me to go to the screenwriter and the filmmaker's lab, so I did some scenes. Oh, okay. And she, it was her idea to have me directed by someone else and then direct myself in the same scene. So I brought Tom Kalin and he directed me and then I directed myself in the same scene. And I was bored when I wasn't directing. So I realized I, I could do it. And uh, the DP they gave me there, Frank DeMarco, ended up becoming my DP. I had Ariane Phillips and Therese Dupre, rest in peace, and and just a great group of people who were experienced. Christine Vachon, Katie mm-hmm. Rumel produced, and I worshipped, you know, Killer Films and Todd Haynes and yeah. Gus Van Sant were heroes, and they both were very supportive. Todd was working on Velvet Goldmine, asked me to play a role. I couldn't because I was doing this. So it was all very exciting, and it was 2000. and Gen X. What's it like, yeah. say, like your first day on the set? I mean, are you overwhelmed? I was pretty or? nervous. I mean, the thing that I'm most confident now, which is directing actors, even then I was like, do I know what the right thing to say is? And then I just remember what I want to hear from a director. And I was much more interested in directing them than doing the role again because I'd been doing it for a year. And it's like, I don't need to do this, but I had to. You know, no one else could do it. So I would be running around in a wig, you know, setting up shots and then forget that I would have to be singing a song now or live, you know. And it was the hardest thing I will ever do. And we had a crew that was used to TV movies and not doing this much, but we had like, it was so punk rock, you know, like the, I'd send the editor, go shoot that insert, you know, Frank, do this. I don't have time to do my ass shot for this. Get the key grip, son, use his ass. <laughs> Move those trucks and fix this wig, you know. And it was, Wait, that's the key grip's ass walking down the alley? <laughs> uh, no, that's my ass. But there's a scene where he meets uh, Sergeant Luther and he's lying naked. Oh, yeah, that, that's uh, not my ass. <laughs> well, your ass looks good in the uh, alley. Thank you. You're welcome. That's all that matters about the, <laughs> the legacy of the film. Like, yes, Does my ass true. look good <laughs> forever? Does this aspect ratio make my... Look good. Big. Um, you know, we shot different formats as tests and realized, you know, 35, and that was, it was great. But I, you know, it was so hard, and I had to, you know, check playback a lot, and I, and it was just like the most stress I've ever experienced in my life. But afterwards, you know, that it'll never be that bad again. And we <laughs> made something very right. special. It was yeah. just painful to make it. I don't think I could do it now everything I did then just physically, but yeah, you just do it. And I mean, we were having fun. It was just, it was the stress fun. And I was surrounded by so many great people that cared and and there was no interference, you know, from studio pain or anything. And Bob, when he saw the director's cut, he was in tears, you know, and and he really just suggested one, one change. So I was given final cut for my first film without any warning. So he gets final cut of this movie that's very innovative at the time. You know, you're talking about a movie in 2001 that's about a drag performer. Yeah, if only Hedwig had gotten final cut. Maybe, right. Maybe so he wouldn't have that angry inch. Have a pleasant foot. 
So it's interesting that how ahead of the curve this character was, because now drag is everywhere. Yeah, RuPaul's Drag Race, you can't get away from it. It's, it's totally exploded and gone mainstream. Right, everybody watches it. And I, I've interviewed RuPaul and other drag queens, and they always talk about it, like putting on a superhero costume and making you this this uh, invincible, superhuman creature. And mm -hmm. um, I think that's a bit about what Hedwig is for him, but mm -hmm. he also refers to drag as armor. You know, in the show itself, he takes the whole costume off and sort of stands there, not completely naked, but pretty close to it in his underwear. And I think that's as important as putting on the wig and the makeup and all that. Right. Just being yourself. This is you. Everybody who gets Hedvig knows that there's many layers of, of that, which is why it isn't, you know, a trans statement and why it isn't. It's a, it's a theater statement. Mm -hmm. It's a statement for masks that are useful at times to protect us, but also let us express. In the end, Hedwig removes the drag, rips it off, in fact, in frustration, and then is, has a vision of a, an apology from her lover who she's been embittered by, and then sings Midnight Radio as perhaps a kind of amalgam of all the people, and the drag is gone, and it's just, I'm whatever you say, I'm Hedwig. now would be a non-binary adjunct professor in the Midwest, <laughs> you know, teaching Kant and, and Bowie and happy that they have health insurance. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, and that's, it, and had, having let go of, you know, the, the armor of the drag, but we all need that armor at some time. It's a beautiful thing. You know, people who like it get that, that they can put the wig on whoever they are. Anyone plays. The most punk rock moment I ever experienced was seeing Iggy Pop at Jones Beach screaming to the audience, I am you. <laughs> I'm you. <laughs> and then going into the audience, I'm you. There's no boundary here. I'm not God. I can be a shaman to get us there, but I, I am you. And Hedvig is you. Hedvig is the audience. Everybody's Hedvig. And if you choose to be, you know, and I love when people do it. I think any gender, race, any age can play it. It's a mask. In San Francisco, 10 people played it because there were 10 right. songs. You know, in, in Brazil, it was two people who, you know, was perfect. And Korea and Japan, it's a, a perennial production. That, you know, Korea's been running for 15 years. Wow. And I go there and I'm a rock star. <laughs> And K-pop bands come because they love Hedvig, and it's it's very weird. 
but it translates to a lot of cultures. It's not queer there. It's not anything. It's just what it is. You know, it, it's what they make it and what what they feel. That's all it is. It's, it doesn't have an agenda. Well, there you go. Everyone out there is Hedwig and you're Hedwig and you're Hedwig, but no one will be a better Hedwig than this week's guest, John Cameron Mitchell. Yes. What a genius. Amazing. I loved hearing him talk. I love meeting him. He's amazing. Just an artist who follows his own path. I loved when you forced him to do the Snapchat gender flipper. He was so gracious. He yeah. posted that on his Instagram, so he wasn't. Did he? he? Yeah, so he wasn't frightened by the whole thing. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. <laughs> it didn't look. He, he got it. It didn't look like Hedwig. It, it no. looked like a secretary in the Midwest. <laughs> right, and, and that's a line in one of the songs. Right, what's the line in one of the songs when he's uh, wig in a box? He's putting on the wigs, and he's Miss Midwest Trailer Park. I, I can't remember the actual. Line. Right, exactly. That's that's what the Snapchat filter did. But anyway, thank you. And listen to his amazing new podcast. It's called Anthem Homunculus, and it's on the Luminary new Luminary podcast app. It's well worth getting a subscription to listen to him. It has songs. It has big stars. And uh, it's really, if you know that it's his biography, it really is quite moving. So he thank you. He turns tragedies into entertainment. So talented. Speaking of turning tragedy into entertainment, can <laughs> you believe... <laughs> We're at the end of the first season. What a journey. Thanks for what coming along with us. We had so much fun. This was an amazing adventure, Chip. I hope you had as much fun as I did. I totally did. Probably more. One person <laughs> we never get to hear from, but we have to thank, is Matthew Whitehurst. Yeah. Our long-suffering, hard-working genius behind the decks who makes it all come together. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Matty Whites. We love you. <laughs> behind the decks on the ones and twos. Thanks again podcast ones and twos. to Paul Masvidal and Sean Malone of the band Cynic for our insanely catchy theme song. Thanks to Matt Bellany, the editorial director of Hollywood Reporter, who said mm -hmm. yes to this crazy idea. Oh, yeah. Thanks to all the other podcasts at THR, to Scott Feinberg's Awards Chatter, which is the 800-pound podcast gorilla around here, and to Leslie Goldberg and Dan Feinberg's TV Top 5, Karen Giardina's Behind the Screen. They're all awesome. You should listen to all of them. It's been an amazing adventure. We're going to take a little hiatus, but we will be back with 10 more amazing stories. And Chip has something he wants to share. Well, I have something that I want you to share, <laughs> which is what happened after we interviewed William Friedkin. It's my favorite story. Okay, well, this is how I knew we had a hit on our hands. So William Friedkin came up here and told us the best stories ever about the making of The Exorcist. It was our pilot episode. We didn't know what to expect. And it was a huge breath of relief. And then I took him downstairs to his awaiting car and I found a $5 bill on the ground. Good luck, right? Yeah. I said, hey, a $5 bill. And I bent down and he snatched it out of my hands and he said, that's my fee. <laughs> and he took it. But he was worth it. Yes. I hope he's telling that story on other podcasts. <laughs> it would be great for their podcast. And I said, that's my fee. Anyway, it's been an amazing, fun time. And until next time, we will see, see you, you in, in Hollywood. Hollywood.